tonight we're continuing our conversation on the uh, ethics of uh, capital punishment. And just to recap, because I know a few folks that are here tonight missed last week, just to kind of give you a real brief overview of what we talked about, we acknowledge that any discussion about capital punishment, given that it results in the taking of a human life, is an emotional one. And it's also a social and spiritual issue because, uh, by definition, uh, capital punishment is an act enacted by a state, not by an individual. So it has social dimensions. We looked at different uh, scenarios, sort of fictional scenarios, but based on real life occurrences and sort of surveyed the class to see what the thinking was as to, out of several punishment options, what you felt the best punishment would be for these crimes. And what we discovered is that some people here uh, think that counseling is a good option for murderers and other people think that torture with capital punishment is a good option for murderers. So we have, uh, even in this group, quite a divergency of opinion, right? And uh, I guess that shouldn't be particularly surprising because I think you fairly well represent some of the views in Canadian society. And in Canadian society, there's a lot of views on this matter. Um, so then what we did is we began to have a conversation about the views of uh, abolitionists, that is those who would argue that capital punishment is unacceptable. Um, now, let me just rephrase that. An abolitionist by definition, would be someone who is in favor of abolishing something that exists. In our context, capital punishment doesn't exist, so you could sort of retool it and just say, this is a person not in favor of capital punishment. And we went through several reasons why an abolitionist would argue as they argue, and then we went through several reasons for what's called retentionism, or, again, in our context, a better way of putting it is those who believe that capital punishment is a valid option under certain circumstances. We looked at all their arguments, sort of logical, philosophical, social, political arguments. And then what we, we did is we just began to work through some different passages of Scripture to try to help us to create a bit of a theological understanding. Because these, these conversations, while they have, to, to, to discuss them practically has merit, but being that we're Christians, it's it's very much of interest to us to discuss this from a biblical theological perspective. And so we began to work through several uh, passages of the Bible. And um, we're going to continue that avenue of inquiry tonight by looking at John 7. So um, we'll look at John 7 and... Verse 53, and we'll sort of follow the conversation through to chapter 8, verse 11. So John 7, 53, this is like the, tail, the very tail end of, uh, the very tail end of uh, John 7. I'll just read it here for us. They went each into his house, and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again to the temple... All the people came with him. He sat down and taught them. So they're having the service. Jesus is doing his teaching thing. And the scribes and the Pharisees, who are these guys? This is kind of important to the text. 
Who are they? Okay. okay, they're the religious leaders. And what was the nature of their relationship with Jesus most of the time? Okay, there was conflict. There was tension because Jesus was sort of stepping on their toes. Now, some of that, some of the stuff they believed was true, but Jesus clearly has a big problem with their attitude. So they brought, they bring a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Let's just pause there and think about something that's rarely mentioned when this text is preached or studied. And that is this question. Why bring this woman to Jesus? Why not handle it themselves? Jesus was not a Pharisee. He was not in the Sanhedrin. He wasn't a Sadducee. Why did these men bring this woman to Jesus in particular? Who wanted to show who? Very good, Jack. Yeah, very good. So this was a setup. We'd call this a setup. This wasn't really like a legitimate theological question. It was a setup. And we have to bear that in mind when we observe Jesus' response here. Now in the law, Moses, ooh, you wouldn't want to mess with Moses. He's kind of a high up, right? Commanded us to stone such a woman so what do you say? Well, if, if they actually knew that to be true, again, why bring her to Jesus? They know what Moses said. This they said to test him. So there we have the, the gospel writer telling us the, the motive question. Why are they doing it? To test him. That they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Lots of People have spent a whole lot of time trying to figure out what he wrote. We don't know. Maybe he was drawing cartoons. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But they, when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Why? <laughs> I think Joyce is onto it. They've sinned more. You know, you, you're sort of maybe more aware of your inadequacies and your weaknesses the, the longer you've been around the block. So they left Jesus alone, the woman standing before him. So, okay, this is where we have this uh, ethical question. Jesus n- knows what Moses said. We already read what Moses said last week. It's pretty clear cut that the just penalty for her crime was stoning. Now, two, two things just to keep in mind. Don't think of the Old Testament as entirely Old Covenant, and don't think of the New Testament as entirely New Covenant. Think about the context. Prior to the Mosaic Law, even though it's Genesis, Exodus, is in the Old Testament, it's actually pre-Old Covenant. Likewise, the Gospels are pre-New Covenant. Like until Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus is actually living in what you would call the Old Testament era. Which means that the Mosaic Law still applies. 
And sometimes we, 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 as soon as we, we go from that little uh, couple extra pages in our Bible from the Old Testament into the New Testament, we think we're in the New Covenant. No, we're not quite yet in the New Covenant. We're in the New Testament. So Jesus is bound by Old Covenant law. And according to the Old Covenant law, this woman, and the Pharisees rightly quote Moses, deserves to die, to be stoned publicly, not by an individual, but publicly. And Jesus does in fact not, he doesn't deny that in the text. He doesn't say, oh, Moses didn't say that, or you got it wrong, or forget about Moses. But due to the motives by those in authority, he sidesteps the issue. And rather than taking matters into his own hands in this situation, he redeems this woman. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. Go now and sin no more. So this is a conversion story. And it's a story that highlights Jesus' ministry vis-a-vis the scribes and Pharisees. It's not really the kind of account that you'd want to use to necessarily... um, minimize mosaic law or to build an argument in contrast to capital punishment law so really it's this it's the stricken conscience of the accusers that ward them away because they understood one fundamental thing they were also guilty of stonable sins Yeah, yeah. so that's another good point. So at this point in history, so we have Mosaic Law, which is obviously given as the people are trying to settle the land of Canaan. Then we have the period of the judges. Everybody's doing it right in his own eyes. Then we have the United Kingdom, then the split kingdom. Then we have an exile. Then we have return from exile. And basically from exile onwards, the Jews never really have full control of the land except for about 120 to 150 year period in the second and third century BC under the Hasmonean kings. But that's pre-Jesus by like 120, 150 years. So again, come the time of Christ, the Jews are living in occupied territory. So they don't really have control over these kinds of things, although they rightly could have requested author, uh, opportunity from, from the governor to have Jesus put to death. And they, I mean, they, they eventually got it. So they probably could have had this woman put to death as well. And another just a reflection, Joyce, is depending on, depending on the circumstances, it's probably not likely that the Romans would have pestered the Jewish leaders if they're stoning some prostitute woman. Probably not really worth their time to potentially cause problems or religious you know, discord. So as, according to the law, let's just recap, stoning was not required. Um, this is just a little insight here into the Levitical law, and this, this may or may not totally apply. According to the law, stoning was not required unless she was, was betrothed or married either. Okay. So. 
stoning. They would have stoned her. Same as a man. Yeah. Yeah, Mark? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. So one possibility is that Jesus literally did what God did in the Ten Commandments. So with his finger, he wrote oh, yeah. in the stone. Yeah. We don't know what sure. would have caused the crowd to worship this guy hmm. for some reason. Yeah, it definitely would have been a miracle, right? Maybe an, un, an unrecorded miracle. Well, that would have obviously been understood to be a miracle. Yeah. So just another perspective. Yeah. No, very good. That'd be interesting couple other points as we start to analyze this. The crowd was not part of a uh, theocratic government, government, meaning a God-centered government. So the, the, the political situation and the, the governmental situation was different, as Joyce has already alluded to, than it was under the Mosaic law or in the generations that followed. So a theocracy is a nation that recognizes God as the supreme leader and the monarch or chief of the people is is sort of God's representative on earth. That's not the case here. So it is a different, even though it's still old covenant, it's a different situation. So their authority to stone Jesus, as we've already mentioned, is questionable. Jesus is zeroing in on their motive. So just a few different things here. Um, This passage, in fact, could reinforce in many ways, the government's ability to exercise capital punishment by virtue of this fact that Jesus doesn't disagree with the Pharisees and the scribes' interpretation. It may challenge or negate the use of capital punishment for adultery, which is something to think about. And fundamentally, one thing we could all agree on, regardless of whether you're an abolitionist or a retentionist, is that it reminds us in cases like this of the need for just judges which these men clearly weren't so as we think about this question of capital punishment this is a reminder of the need whoever sort of bringing down the gavel has to be just and one could argue that what Jesus is actually doing here is he's calling out the injustice of the judges sanctioned though they may be be by their society and by virtue of their authority to execute judgment on such issues, they were not just righteous men and therefore Jesus sort of pulls the rug out from under them and says, you you actually don't qualify to make the judgment. Without necessarily reading into this text, this is Jesus abolishing capital punishment. So that's just uh, something to think about. And then let's go to uh, Acts 25 for another little bit of insight into this matter. And again, none of these texts in and of themselves sort of close the deal or seal the deal one way or the other, but I think they all kind of weigh in. Acts 25, verse 11. This is is in reference to Paul.
Okay, so let's go back to verse 6. Verse 11 is going to be our our focal verse, but just to set the context. This is Paul. So after he stayed among them not more than 8 or 10 days, he went down to Caesarea. The next day he took a seat in the tribunal and and ordered uh, Paul to be brought. So this is um, Festus. So he's like the, the governor. Now, when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem, geographically they're actually going up, but they're coming down in terms of topography, stood before him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argues in his defense, he plays his own defense attorney, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the people, nor against Caesar, if I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. Now listen to this. If, then, I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, No one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now, here we have Paul. Again, the Romans are in charge, but the Jews are weighing in too. Paul's in a position to potentially be put to death, to potentially receive capital punishment. If... A hypothetical if the charges of speaking evil, etc., against the high priest by the Sanhedrin are true. And as we look at that sort of an analysis of the passage, while the situation is a false allegation, Paul seems quite clear is willing to be killed if the charges are true. Now, willing, not in the sense of, yeah, bring it on. But it implies, unless he has some sort of a other notion in mind, that he is giving a bit of a tip of the hat to the concept of capital punishment by virtue of the fact that in his mind it would appear that he's saying, yeah, I mean, it would be just if the allegations are true. And maybe then this passage serves to illustrate that capital punishment is only allowable in cases of certain guilt. Now, someone who maybe is more on the retentionist side might say, well, you know, he's just sort of speaking tongue-in-cheek. He doesn't really favor it, but he's saying, sort of mentioning it, uh, knowing that he's not guilty to sort of appease the crowd. You know, maybe that's a possibility, but that doesn't seem to be the case, especially when we later find ourselves in the book of Romans and we read read Paul, who also wrote the book, who wrote the book of Romans, didn't write the book of Acts, but his conversation is being recorded in the book of Acts, who seems to also give a tip of the hat to the government's ability to wield the sword when necessary. Nancy? The adulterer. And the adulteress. Right. So that's both. Yes. But the guy wasn't a Roman 
Oh, in the in the in the New Testament one. Oh, okay. Maybe it was one of them. <laughs> no, it hadn't changed. It hadn't changed, but again, it illustrates the hypocrisy, the lack of consistency. It's a great question. Where is the guy? Yeah. I mean, it, we can only hypothesize, but several reasons. It could have been someone in a position of authority. It could have been one of their buddies. It could have been someone who paid them off. It could be their hard view on patriarchy and their lesser view of women. Uh, it could be that it was an easier win for them than if they brought a guy, um, socially, politically. It could have been that... Um, it would put Jesus on the spot, maybe make him feel a little more awkward, like I'm a guy, I'm a single guy, I'm a rabbi, I can't like side with a woman. There, there could be any number of psychological factors there that, that cause them to act the way they do. But y you're right, it's a great question. Where was the guy? But uh, Paul was a Roman citizen. So you're back in the Acts passage? Yep, you're right. But the Romans could. I know. That's why he refers to yep. Caesar. Yep. Yep, that's true. Yeah. Okay, so let's go to um, Matthew chapter 5 then. Thirty-eight to forty-five. Okay, we've come back to this one several times. And it's probably a good thing, because it's going to be quoted to you several times, and often misquoted. So, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. What's Jesus quoting? Okay, say a little louder. Okay, so this is what's called in, in law, I guess. It's a Latin term, but the lex talionis, and this is sort of the basis for a lot of um, modern law, and it's based on Mosaic law. Did he misquote or did he quote it right? Quoted it right, though. I mean, it's, it's not a misquote. But I say to you, now, this word, but is in grammar, your English teacher would tell you this is called a disjunctive. It dis, disjoins something. But a but doesn't necessarily disjoin something totally. It can also be a continuation of what's been previously said. Or it could give you sort of a footnote to what's been previously said. And there's... I'm sure grammatical terms that an English teacher would use or any grammatical teacher would use to describe that. So just because you see Jesus say, well, you heard it said, but that doesn't mean Jesus is saying, get rid of it. I'm going to give you a, I'm going to replace it with something else. And those of you that have been here the last few weeks know that that's my view, that this is not a negation of the previous, but it's a continuation of it or an application of a similar idea in a different context. 
But I say to you, do not resist the evil, the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Many pacifists in war or retentionists when it comes to capital punishment will pull this text out and use it to propagate this idea that Christians are not allowed to ever resort to violence. Um, some people actually just, just read this this week in an article. A guy was arguing that based on this text and similar texts that Christians should never involve themselves in um, boxing, uh, martial arts, law enforcement, yada, yada, yada. Anything that would involve any sort of violence. Full contact hockey. <laughs> uh, it's, it wouldn't, it's, it's not a particularly popular interpretation for Canadians. But um, that this passage basically is you sort of always got to be passive. And the problem with that is the illustrations Jesus uses in this text to make his point don't support that. This is not a text about violence. You might say, well, he, he talks about slapping people. The point is not the slap. The point is, and we illustrated this, I can't remember who was sitting up here. If you look at the direction the hand would swing in the face, this is being hit in the face by the hand that people living in the Greco-Roman era would use to wipe their behind with. And because of that, it was an act of disrespect. And then you add the two other illustrations which are more insult-oriented than physical at all. And, and let's just say this before we move on. If you want to, to physically assault someone, you're probably not going to slap them. You're going to punch them minimally or shove them. With that in mind, if someone takes your tunic, okay, would sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. So the two main pieces of clothing, the outer, the inner, if he wants to take one, give him the other. In other words, you're standing there in your loincloth. This is more about disrespect than about physical attack. And then if he wants you to go one mile, go two. So you need to kind of understand then that there's this Roman law that says a Roman soldier in any of the Roman provinces could ask any citizen to carry his equipment one mile, one Roman mile. That was a law. So this would apply to the Palestinian situation because in Palestine at the time, and that was the name of the province, Palestinia, the Jewish people could be required by any Roman soldier to carry his equipment one mile. Jesus said, go to. So when you add these three illustrations up, it's more about being disrespected and in this context tied to your life as a Christian than it is about allowing yourself to get beat up or allowing someone to slap you around, so to speak. It's not the point of the text. It's about allowing yourself to be disrespected for the sake of the gospel instead of going around trying to defend yourself all the time from every little insult that you might experience. That, that I think, is the baseline point of the text. It's a very high form of dignity. Yeah, yeah. It is a high form of dignity, right. I like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Oh yeah. Yep. 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 Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's this broader ethic of of loving your neighbor instead of hating them. But sure. No. Um. Yeah. Okay. Right. Not in the modern context. I mean, in certain countries, especially in Arab countries that are dominated by Islam, that still happens. So, I mean, you brought up a lot there, Jill. But let me just say this with regard to this text. The point being, the point I'm trying to make is this text. So if you go from verse 38 to verse 48, while it is advocating an ethic of love against those who offend you, this is a personal ethic. This is not a collective ethic per se. It's certainly not a governmental ethic that Jesus is advocating. But on a personal level, you're going to be offended. People are going to do things unjust to you. Don't let it rock your boat all the time. That's the basic takeaway. This is the way I think this text is to be taught. So my point being is that when you're trying to take this text and apply it to a more corporate ethic, like capital punishment. It's a misuse of the text. So with regard to the, um, you know, the other two laws you mentioned, we talked last week, for those of you who are here, about the fact that, I mean, Cain killed his brother and he didn't get put to death. Um, there's exceptions to the rule don't necessarily, exceptions to any rule don't necessarily negate the rule they in fact from a certain angle might reinforce the rule or help us to see that there are other considerations to be had in the Cain event probably the simplest way of putting it is that he wasn't put to death via capital punishment because it would have been his mom and dad doing it and that would have been kind of hard to to consider and secondly um, there wasn't a government yet and sometimes it appears in the Bible that God permits or allows certain things to happen until suitable structures are in place to bring about that which, which needs to be done. So when we fast forward then to Genesis 9-6, now they're coming off the ark. And prior to that, God had exercised capital punishment upon the earth by wiping everybody out. He's going to do it again in Korah's rebellion in the wilderness um, and there's several times when God wipes masses of people out. But the law that God gives to Noah and his descendants, which appears to be universal in its language, is whoever sheds the blood of man, by man will his blood be shed. And that includes animals that take the lives of human beings in that text. So that, that law, okay, 
is not changed or negated under the Mosaic law. It's given greater specificity. There's detail added to it. There's circumstances that are outlined in the Levitical law that put more checks and balances into place. Okay, scenario A, check, it applies. Scenario B, doesn't apply. Scenario C, it applies. So there's scenarios that are laid out in the Levitical texts that help the people of God to see how this law, which really was based on the Noahic law, is, is to be put into effect. Now, the circumstances change in the New Testament in that, as we've alluded to, there's no theocracy. We're now looking at an ethic, not necessarily for a nation, which is the focus of the Old Testament, but now to a, a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, global institution, i.e. the church, that doesn't have the authority to put people to death. So the 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 scenarios have changed, or the scenario has changed. So the laws aren't, the laws of the New Testament aren't governmental in orientation because God's not speaking to a government. He's speaking to a diverse, eclectic group of people, a bunch of ragtag followers, i.e. you and I. So it's a different context, right? Um, so as we're sort of meandering through the New Testament, then what we're trying to do is to see, like, are there any glimpses, uh, any insights into the mindset of men like Paul when it came to their understanding of the government's authority in matters like this? And it seems to me that while over here, yeah, they're advocating an individual ethic. Jordan, you need to love me, bro, even if I offend you. Jenny, you need to love him, even though he's hard to get along with, right? And church, this is how you need to respond to your enemies. So there's this whole new list of ethical statements given to the church and individuals. Behind the scenes, we're still curious, what were their views about corporate responsibility, governmental responsibility, which is where capital punishment falls into this category, not that category. It doesn't fall into the category of what authority does the church have to take life or what authority does Jordan have to take life. It falls into the category of what did the apostles and the early believers see as the authority of the government or governing authorities in matters of public execution or discipline. So, okay. By the way, one critical thing to keep in mind in... All of these conversations is you don't have to agree with me. Okay? But you still have to be my friend when you leave. Okay? So Romans 13. Romans 13 is where we're going to go next. Um, oh, there was something just... This is off topic, but there was something... Um, I mentioned last week um, in passing, and afterwards I had some more thoughts about it. I wanted to kind of, oh, bring those forward. I know what it was. This is just an interesting like biblical fact, right, or biblical scenario. So we, we for some reason, at some point in our reading of Noah, um, Noah 9, Genesis 9, we talked about Ham going into his father's tent, and 
I suggested to you, oh, where, where it started from is we, we were reading Lev, the Levitical law. And in the Levitical law, one of the sins punishable by capital punishment is when a son goes in and sleeps with his father's wife. Okay, that's, that's where it was. Remember that? And that sort of triggered in my mind the, the, um, uh, the, the, the situation in, um, I believe it's Genesis 9, where right after they come off the ark, or shortly thereafter, Ham, it says, saw his father's nakedness. And that terminology, saw his father's nakedness, is the exact terminology in the Levitical law. So my view is that what Ham did, and I'm going to sort of add a little more to it in a moment, is he didn't go in and, ah, dad's naked, ha, 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 hey, hey, brothers, look, have a peek. That would be ridiculous. You're not going to curse a whole nation for that. And I'm not sure that would be, I mean, you know, many of us growing up probably saw our father's nakedness. In the change room at the YMCA, everybody drops their drawers, big deal, right? Um. The euphemistic language of the text probably suggests that what he did is he went in and had an incestuous relationship with Noah's wife, who may or may not have been his own biological mother. Who knows, maybe his, his real mother had died before the ark. We don't know, right? But the question would be, why would you do that? So I want you to think about this for a minute. Why did Absalom do it? When Absalom try to take the kingdom from his father, why would you take your dad's harem, bring them out in public, and have sexual intercourse with them? Why did Reuben, okay, why did Reuben, one of Jacob's sons, sleep with his father's maidservant and receive a curse from his father when his dad's commemorating the list of nations in Genesis 50? Why did Reuben receive a curse from his father? His father says, you went, in, you went into my bed. Because in that time, and this is culturally just weird for us, in that time, when the sons wanted to usurp their father's authority and take the reins of the clan, they would try to sleep with a or one of the father's wives. And that would publicly humiliate the father to the point that he would not be able to lead the family. So in all of those events, I believe that what was going on is we have a son who sort of comes into his own and he wants to take authority from his dad. In order to do so, he sleeps with his father's wife. And I believe that's why Ham um, comes out, tells his brothers about it. Hey, I'm the man in charge now. His dad calls him out on it. Now, further reason to take that interpretation is because who receives the curse in the Ham text? Canaan. Who's Canaan? Canaan's the son born from that, probably that incestuous relationship. So Canaan was probably considered an illegitimate child born from Ham and his father's wife, either his mother or his stepmother, who knows. And... Of course, in the text, too, it serves as a bit of a polemic or an argument to justify the Canaanite genocide later as the uh, Jews are about to take the ancestors of Canaan, 
by force in the land of Canaan. But that's why Canaan would receive then the the um, the curse, and I mean Ham sort of does, but he's not actually named in the text. So when you sort of bring all these factors together, it sort of clears up a lot. It explains um, the the nature of the offense. It it kind of ties it in with the Reuben event, the Absalom event, the reason why the curse is on Cain, not on Ham, and you know all the power structures and some of the cultural nuances that were going on back then and why God felt it was necessary to say in the Levitical text, if you do this, you're dead. And you think about the practicalities of that. What that law does is that as she guards the, the head of the home, the family unit, from destruction, from societal collapse. And in that sense, even though people today argue that capital punishment isn't a deterrent, well, in that culture, it was supposed to be very much of a deterrent against certain crimes or sins. So, kind of neat. Any comments or questions about that? It's an interesting, uh, it's a bit of an anomaly in the text. I thought I'd take a little bit of time to explain that one. So we're in Romans chapter 13 then. And Romans, of course, written by the Apostle Paul. Here we have um, this broader conversation about being subject to government. So when the Christian says, hey, you know, what, what is my responsibility to government, especially a government that doesn't love my God? Paul gives a little teaching on this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Now, this does not mean that God only puts good guys in power. It's more of a recognition of God's sovereignty than God only puts good guys in power. Because if God only puts good guys in power, we get a lot of problems. Uh, we're going to have a lot of problems with God, or a lot of confusion about how, how that all works. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So for the purposes of this text, he's not putting all the little checks and balances in place that we would eventually want to put in place for, well, when do I rebel against government? That's for the ethical discussion called civil disobedience. But for the sake of this conversation, just notice Paul's high view of government and what it tells us about his understanding of their authority. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. Clearly, the sword is not a euphemism for a $50 fine. And I doubt that an ancient reader would ever think that way. This is about, if you mess with the authority, you're going to die. And the assumption, again, he doesn't qualify, at this point, he doesn't qualify it with, well, what if the ruler is not looking out for the good of his people? Or, you know, what if a citizen is falsely accused. Those qualifications aren't here at this point. He's just giving a simple statement. Government is for the good of the people, which as a general proverbial truth, they are. If you mess with them, they're going to enact judgment upon you as you know, the, the righteous right arm of God, so to speak. So again, it would, it would appear that in Paul's head, as he thought about governmental responsibility, he was quite okay with the idea of government putting you to death if you broke the law. 
Yeah, he doesn't, doesn't give us a long list of what those laws might be or qualify it with all the what-ifs. It's just a, a, ge a generic statement that in Paul's head, the government can take their sword and cut you down if you disobey them because they exist for the good of society. So Paul permits, it would appear, the use, or maybe not permits because it's not his job to permit it, but he seems to acknowledge the rights of government to uh, exercise um, capital punishment. The um, Let me see, I wanted to make another comment here. I'll just leave it at that. Oh, I will make a comment. Uh, he, do, he, he does not comment on whether or not the church should actively endorse the authority of the government to exercise capital punishment. I don't think there's any text that we could go to that would say, um, you know, we should go around necessarily championing it, but it certainly doesn't appear that in his mind it would be something that we would preach against. So, before I kind of give some concluding statements, just interested in, um, in any general feedback that we might be able to generate based upon the conversation we've had the last couple of weeks. We've talked everything about, you know, is it a deterrent, isn't it, what's the cost? I actually looked this one up in Canada, in a penitentiary, a local jail is probably a little different. What do you think the cost is, the average cost to incarcerate someone in a penitentiary per year in Canada right now? Average cost. Okay, 40, 80, 300. Any wild guesses? 117,000 per year per criminal. And for women, it's it's into the 200s. Cost more money to incarcerate women because there's fewer of them and they need their mascara and everything else, I suppose. <laughs> bring out the stones. <laughs> we had a public stoning and it was a pastor. Um, in actual fact, there's there's fewer women in the penitentiary system, so you have to have, uh, you know, you're not maxing out your infrastructure, so it costs you more. D dangerous offenders, I was reading, are into the 150s, 160 range on average, like kind of the Paul Bernardos, because there's more, I guess, uh, more space that they would take up, fewer guards per capita, all that kind of stuff. But we're talking about some big dollars. Now, um, I wrote this down. Guess how much it is in the U.S.? Average. Around 30 grand. So that's, that's, a, that's a huge spread, right? That's like a, almost a quarter. I don't know. Maybe. I'm not sure. You know, with, with services, maybe the, maybe the the wages. I don't know. So 30 grand, 117 grand. Now, one one writer I was reading about made an interesting point. They said that um, a lot of people will say. Um, um, I mean, this doesn't apply necessarily to murderers, but one of the benefits of paying that 117,000, or in the U.S. 30 grand, is that the 
the average criminal, I can't remember the exact numbers, I don't know if it was per day or per week, but this is, and how do you come up with these numbers? I don't know. Extracts from the economy something like 2,500 bucks. And again, I'm not sure if it's per day or per week. So they actually said it's cheaper on society to lock someone up and pay them 117 grand than have them kicking in people's doors and stealing your DVDs and you know, killing people and paying the price of investigation and all that kind of stuff. So this writer, who's a Christian, argued that, and again, it's not directly relevant to the issue of capital punishment, but that it's cheaper to pay the money to lock them up than to allow them to bring, wreak havoc on society. And they, they came up with some numbers, and they were into like the hundreds of billions of dollars per year that it costs south of the border. Um, the country, if you add up all the crimes uh, that are committed, hundreds of billions of dollars it costs. So cr you know, crime is a lucrative Lucrative business, right? For for men. So, it's interesting. So anyway, back to my uh, previous question. Just any thoughts? Do you have any thoughts or um, uh, considerations you'd like to throw out? I was once asked by a Christian, "What if I committed uh, in a time of war an act?" that would clearly be considered murder. What, what are my, like years ago, let's say someone's in Vietnam and they're out shooting the enemy and their friends are dying and um, you know, you're just in a culture of death, you're not a Christian and you end up killing out of anger or whatever um, some potentially innocent people or some civilians come to Christ and years later are struggling with that. What do you turn yourself in? What's your ethical responsibility? I had a Christian ask me this kind of a question. How would you respond? I mean, if it was on the street corner last week, I know what you'd say. But if someone said, you know, different time, different culture, different circumstances, a terrible act was committed, what should I do? It's a humdinger of a question. What would you say? What's that, Jen? Oh. <laughs> Any thoughts? Because, you know, last week when we had our chart up on the board, several of you checked off the capital punishment op option. Okay. Um, if I if I choose to uh, not to not to confess with the authorities, okay, probably it's gonna be like double punishment. Oh, okay. Here on earth, because they're gonna put me in jail. Okay. Yeah. Just so I just want to let her finish. Oh. 
Okay. Well, we, we need to be a little bit careful. Um, I would agree that there are certainly punishments, or at least um, to be quite accurate, a removal of blessings and eternal rewards from God upon believers who have lived their lives in sin. We think of 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and each one will receive what is due him or her for the things done in the body, whether they be good or bad. And that's a message to the church. That's a reference to the judgment that the people of God will experience, which I believe is distinct from Revelation 20, which is the judgment of damnation for the unbeliever, right? So when you stand before God, God's not going to say, you killed someone or you murdered somebody or you stole or you committed adultery. You're out of here. You're going to hell. You're security before God, be it heaven or hell, is based upon your acceptance of Jesus Christ as your Savior, and that's for keeps, right? So I think this person was quite quite assured that they have proper standing with God because they have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But when it comes to um, their maybe responsibility to own up for something they did in the past and to accept the potential of uh, judgment, I don't know, maybe even death, I'm not sure about the circumstances for their crime. That's the big question. Now, um, let, let me just throw out a couple of things, then I'll, I'll, I'll give Jack a moment here. Um, if it was a Nazi, uh, everybody here would say, oh, I'll turn him in. But how many people are coming into our country from war-torn countries, African countries? Um, we're not even talking necessarily about people who went from Canada during Vietnam to another country. What about people that are, several of you here are from other countries. What if you come out of a country that was just an upside-down absolute mess and, you know, pre-Christ? I don't know, you were, you were the guy out in the streets of some African town wielding the machete or busting into houses or, you know, whatever it might be. And, uh, you know, time passes and you sort of grow up and things change in a different culture and a different time and you become a believer. Um, and maybe even going back to that country, there's not even an adequate justice system in place. It raises some questions. Think, think of the people who eventually will wind up in our country, and it will happen, maybe 20 years from now, who fought with ISIS or are fighting with ISIS now, who may come to faith in Jesus later and move here. What do you do with people like that? Jack, did you want to weigh in? Well, we talked about Vietnam. It was a, a dirty war mm -hmm. where we didn't know it which one was uh, South uh, Vietnam instead of North Vietnam. Yeah. And they, you would have women and children bringing grenades to, yeah. you know, in your camp, you know, killing your friends and things like that. Yeah. You're, you're lying. 
Oh, for sure. Like, yeah. there's no question about the fact that people experience things we've never experienced. Uh, then it's your, then I'm yeah. mm. I would feel guilty about it. That I don't would you turn yourself in? Yeah, I would. Yeah. Sam? Well, that's what I was going to ask, because I didn't understand the question at the beginning. The, more, the dilemma that this gentleman was facing was whether or not for a crime that he committed during war... Mm-hmm different country he was contemplating going back to that country mm-hmm. and be, turning himself into the authorities for yep. what he had done yeah I, I even think of Paul who had people dragged out of their homes right. who had people stoned came to know Christ mm-hmm. and then went back to the same people and said I believe now in Christ yeah. 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 I mean, I've had people. I've had people ask me. You know, when I was before I was a Christian, I was, uh, you know, a run-of-the-mill criminal. Didn't necessarily kill anybody, but I busted in doors and stole things. And you know, to what degree am I now responsible to make amends? It's maybe a lesser crime than murder, but. At least the big ones. Yeah. We all commit the small ones, yeah, at least yeah, the small the ones, yeah. Maybe what? some of the big ones. Were you asking me a question or making a statement? Well, I'm asking you guys the question. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get your collective wisdom on this. <laughs> Pardon me? Yeah. Unless they're un- anonymous people, you know. Mm-hmm. 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 Formally speaking, working against the law, more or less he was working against something moral. But uh, there, nobody was after him. Oh, you did wrong. I'm going to fine you. Yeah. But I know, I know what you're saying. So someone's, let's say uh, um, someone's sitting in front of you and they say, big crime, murder, lesser crime, blowing up a building. Nobody's killed, but they blow up a building. Happened years ago. Never told anybody. Telling you now. They're looking you in the eye. Should I turn myself in or not? What's... How many yeses? I'm going to give you a yes, no, and I have no idea. Okay. (laughs) 
but the no ideas have to stand and come up front. No. <laughs> so how many yeses? Turn yourself in. Nice and high. Yeses, turn yourself in. Noes. So the born-again Nazi that slaughtered people in the death camps, you'd just say. Okay, how about maybes? You're not sure. I totally agree. I think everybody here would agree with that on like an emotional, social level to brother in Christ or sister in Christ. But to, again, to use sort of a little bit of a more difficult example, there, I'm, I'm sure there must have been members of the Gestapo or the Nazis in the death camps. I mean, there, there must be some of those guards. There's, there's probably hundreds and thousands of them that became born-again Christians at some point post-war. And if this guy here is the born-again Christian that's ministering in an orphanage now, and this guy's just your average Joe Blow secularist that's running his auto repair business, and they both come and ask you the same question, do you say to this guy, well, you're helping people out. Don't bother telling anybody. Well, you haven't done much for society. We're, you know, we're calling the uh, Israeli Secret Service. Is there a statute of limitations on punishment for sin, Glenn? How about a lesser crime? Like, where does the line get drawn? Yeah, well, I guess if we were if we were to look at a grade of sins, you know, the, the candy from the candy bar when you're 10, right up to, I used to be a serial killer. Where do we draw the line? Say, from here down, it's under the blood, and society doesn't need to know. From here up, it's under the blood, but you should still turn yourself in. Okay. Yeah. Okay, good. Okay, yeah, 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 
Cynthia, I think I saw your hand next. You can either answer it or take it in another direction and come back to go. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah, good, good point. Anne was invited into the United States on several occasions to visit. Which the U.S. would not allow that if it was an Eastern European murderer, but he's just some guy from the jungles. He didn't know better, so we'll let him in because he's got a story to tell. It's, inter it's an interesting cultural observation. Well, he's a, he's a naive native. He didn't know better. But the Gestapo, well, he knew better. So, I mean, you make a good point, but it's interesting to see how the same government would handle two different kinds of people in those situations. Mark? Yeah, in Paul's example, you read it uh, already today in Acts 25. When um, he's being asked to go to Jerusalem to try, to be tried, and he knows it's a kind of a setup, and he says, um, but Paul said in Acts 25, verse 10, but Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done, done no wrong, as you yourselves know. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. Mm. But if there is nothing to their charges, no, anyways, he's not he's known to be a Christian killer. He's not yeah. denying that. Yeah. And he's as bad as those Nazis, really. And yeah. so... He himself felt no conviction to go and put himself under justice, yeah. but he himself said, "If I am, if I've done something, I'm not trying to hide it. I'm not trying to get away from it." Yeah. Okay. Good point. Um, yeah. One more in chapter nine of Acts two. It's a good point, though, because while he's innocent of the immediate charges, he's guilty of other charges that are certainly not being brought against him at that point in time. And then um, at his conversion, it says this in Acts chapter 9, verse 4. It says, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Mm. And he said, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city. So the bigger problem is with his maker that he has got to be just before and mm. had to make reconciliation to. Mm. That had to be done. Yeah. But then in a sense, he's sort of allowing... If someone calls me to justice, then so be it. I'm yeah. guilty. I'm standing for it. Yeah. Good. It's good, good, in, good insights. This society is, is uh, not forgetful. Uh, if you get, you will serve time, 15 years or something like that. You can't come back and 
Sure. If it's a heinous crime, for sure. Jenna? Um, I had more of a question than a comment, but I'm okay. just wondering what role forgiveness would play in this whole mm -hmm. debate, if it would be applicable in a corporate sense, or if forgiveness is more of an individual aspect. Yeah. Okay, actually, Jill, Jill asked this question earlier, in, in a certain sense, and um, it's probably important for us to say this, that forgiveness is, a different, is in a different category than consequences that uh, sometimes we sort of bring them together and we throw love into the mix too. So if I love someone or forgive someone, that means there's, there's no consequences. That's not true. So if... if Yeah, so when, when one forgives then, one chooses not to meditate upon the other's violation of the law, hold it over their head and so forth and so on. But that doesn't mean there's not consequences to one's actions. So, you know, we, those of us that are parents probably can recall many times we said to our kids, you know, something to the effect, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. And then they do it. And we maybe have a conversation, you know, when we're calm, one of those moments when we really do well as parents, we, you know, we have the, the calm conversation and we explain the reasons why and, you know, we feel we, you know, did our jobs well. And then we say, but I love you, but you're still not watching Nintendo for the next month <laughs> or whatever that might be. So forgiveness doesn't exclude it. it, it so if someone does something heinous to my family, um, kills my child uh, or I don't know, breaks and burns my house down or whatever it might be uh, as tough as it might be especially in killing of a child I I must forgive but I'm not going to go to court and say I've forgiven him you know send the guy home I would it was not it's not it's not incompatible Well, one of the students made an interesting comment after class last week. To put someone in jail is to, for life life is to say, I'm going to remove you from society for the rest of your life. I'm going to deprive you of all your dreams, all your joys. I'm going to put you in an environment where you're going to be potentially abused. You're going to eat crummy food. You're going to be told what to do. That doesn't sound like forgiveness to me either, if, if that's how you want to frame it. In fact, um, this person actually suggested that they thought that was a greater violation in some ways of um, almost a greater, this isn't the language that was used, but almost in a sense a greater affront to their humanity and their dignity than just, you're done. Yep. Could be. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Yeah, and that's certainly a practical consideration, although we, we would need to be careful not to punish someone based upon what that does psychologically for the family, as much as that factors in, because another person might say, as long as I know they're alive, oh, I just can't even get through the day. Another person might say, well, the state says they have to die, but I don't want them to die. So there's, there's, there's all sorts of different human reactions to situations like that, and we would want to be careful not to base laws based upon we always would consider the families. That's why we have victim impact statements and whatnot. But we would want to be careful not to base the law upon the potential reaction or lack thereof of a family member. I'll just take a couple more comments and then we'll we'll go to prayer. Na I'll go with Nancy and then were you going to ask? Okay, I don't think Michelle's commented yet. So the song "All Is Well with My Soul" mm -hmm. is probably what was music in my mind. Mm -hmm. These lawn signs that say "Prepare to make to meet thy maker." Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I would refer you to Romans 1 and Psalm 25. Um, yeah. There's no such thing as an innocent person. That's the basic answer to you. When I stand before God, I am fully convinced that my sins have been atoned for by God. But here's my basic prayer. I hope that the, the moment that I die, I'm not in, in the middle of sinning. Yes. Yes. I, I hope like things are going really well, at least five minutes before and five minutes after, right? So. <laughs> yeah. Thief on the cross, yeah. Not a lot of rewards, but um, an open door. Okay, Michelle. I wanted to add one thing that I like, that I say, like, I understood as a Christian that if we forgiving, we for we forgiving, we forget too. But it's very hard to forget when some murder hurt us somebody. Else. Yeah. So this case was exactly what. Yeah. So so again, just to be real clear because sometimes we need to hear the same thing a few times just to straighten it out up here, right? War and capital punishment are what we call corporate ethics. They are not necessarily totally distinct from, but they're in a different category from a personal ethic. So a personal ethic, which is, which is basically our way of saying, how do I live my life as an individual 
okay, there's a whole lot of conversation to be had there. Then when you jump into the category, how do, how do societies, how does God expect societies to govern? How, do, how does God expect societies to respond to threats of war or murderers? This is the category we find ourselves in here. As soon as we, in fact, jump back into forgiveness and love, we're, we're actually over in the individual ethic thing, even though individuals make up society. Um, societies have collective consciousness and collective rules that govern them rightly or wrongly. And as citizens of a country, not only a heavenly kingdom, but also an earthly one, um, it's important for us to weigh in on some of these issues, kind of bring in God's perspective, bring in God's eternal truths, if they are eternal, or temporary truths, if they're temporary, and try, try to help shape culture so that its corporate ethic as best as possible reflects what we see in Scripture. And, that, and that's what we've been trying to do the last several weeks. Okay, so good conversation. Thank you for it. Uh, we have some prayer sheets. Um, we're going to, uh, it's 10 to 8. So um, the way this works is uh, small groups, individual prayers are fine. I probably wouldn't recommend anything more than maybe groups of six. So any, just because of, because of time. Groups of one to six, just spend some time praying uh, for a few minutes. There's some sheets that are around the room that'll give you some fodder for that. And then uh, when the lights are flashed, so one person in the group has to keep at least one eye open. Then we go have snacks. Let's just kind of grab our stuff, bring it back to the table for the sake of time. And then I just want to introduce our third topic, which is reproductive ethics. Okay, what are the ethics pertaining to human reproduction? Okay, so let's spend some time in prayer. Okay, let's uh, let's get started. Okay, folks, let's get started. This is the ethics of the ethics of teacherly disobedience. Okay. It doesn't sound very. Hello, hello. There we go. What's that? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I thought the power was off because I couldn't hear, but I realized because you kept talking after the lights were switched. So we're going to switch and have an ethical discussion about disobeying authority. No. I'm glad your fellow I'm glad you're fellowshipping. It's probably more important than anything I have to say anyway. So the consequences. You all get a D. Yeah. On your report card. All right. <laughs> okay. So um this is the third topic in this course and uh it it relates it's sort of a broad topic, so we can't get into everything and I'm not a physician, so I don't even know all the latest and the greatest technologies that are out there, but if this serves to at least get you thinking 
about reproductive ethics, and it'll be time well spent. So what we, basically the question is, when it comes to issues of um, having children, choosing not to have children, in vitro fertilization, artificial insemination, these kinds of reproductive technologies that are a little bit, little bit unique to the last, whatever, several decades. Um, how do we weigh in on those kinds of things? The Bible clearly has nothing to say about in vitro fertilization. So you have to go to other ethical principles to try to give people guidance. But you'll have, you'll have people that um, are Christians who will ask questions like, you know, is it okay to use contraceptives? Uh, is it okay to um, artificially inseminate? Is it okay to use donor sperm? These are not questions that are sort of, you know, way out there. I, I've, had, I've had Christians talk to me about these kinds of things. And so we want to have a bit of a conversation about how this all, how we can maybe uh, answer some of these questions. So we're going to sort of start with some background. What is sexual contraception? So we'll start with the ethics of contraception. Uh, the, uh, so the, the definition is any means employed, whether uh, mechanical or chemical, to inhibit a sperm meeting an ovum. So pretty straightforward. Um, that's not the same as abstinence. That's not contraception. But any mechanical or chemical, chemical means to inhibit a uh, sperm meeting an ovum. So that obviously involves, you know, vasectomy, tying your tubes, the use of condoms, intrauterine devices, diaphragms, spermicides, you know, all of these kinds of things. A little bit of background. In uh, Deuteronomy 25.5, there is a reference to a man named Onan, practicing, and I don't know who came up with this term, but the official terminology is coitus interruptus, which basically means you stop having sex halfway through. Deuteronomy 25.5. Okay, so this is the... um, uh, the Leverite law. I think I got that one right. So the idea is the whole kinsman redeemer where seed promises were given to Moses, they were given to Abraham, they were given to the people of God. But you probably should know they weren't unique to Israeli culture in particular. Ancient peoples put a huge emphasis on children. And a lot of cultural notions that we don't have, Your the, the importance of uh, a, a man having a son that would carry on his name, not in the sense of his literal name, because they didn't really have last names, and not every son, well, a few sons would have been named his father's name, at least one generation removed. Um, but the whole idea of, of continuing you on in a son was extremely important. Nowadays, in our culture, it's more like, ah, it's really cool to have kids, and it's nice to have kids, and Oh, I'd like to have some kids someday. But we don't think about, we tend not to think about um, carrying on our name 
uh, in the same way that maybe the ancients would. And frankly, I'm struggling even to kind of put it into words because I don't fully understand that mindset myself. But suffice to say that was important. So it says, uh, oh, it actually says levirate right in the head, heading there. So I got it right. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall be married outside the family to a stranger. Her, husband sh uh, her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to be his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed uh, to the name of his dead brother. That is uh, the name that, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. What's one book of the Bible that's basically based upon all Ruth, right? That's, this is like the illustration of this being put into practice. Um, this is also why it was very offensive for Judah's sons, well, second and third sons, not to impregnate Tamar. So she took, takes matter into her own hands and plays the role of a harlot, and Judah actually ends up impregnating her, right? And the two sons are born of it and whatnot. So very important to have a name, a, a son that would allow your name not to be blotted out of Israel. So the way it would work is, you know, ladies, if you're checking out some guy and you're thinking about marrying him, you might want to see what his brother's like too. <laughs> because uh, <laughs> if he passes away, this, you're, you're stuck with uh, the number two guy, okay? So oh, she has four options, you're saying? Okay. So now if not the brother, if there's no brother, then it's like the next closest male relative right down the the line, right? So with Ruth, Boaz was kind of a little more distantly related, but he was the kinsman redeemed. Actually, he was second in line, wasn't he? Because he uh, he goes and asks permission to sort of take the role of kinsman redeemer from whatever the name of the guy was. It was actually first in line. At this, and then they make it public at the city gates. Pardon me? No. No. Yeah. Yeah. Now, <laughs> the plot thickens. <laughs> now, interestingly, uh, interestingly, a lot of men didn't want to, to take this role on because the first son would not be included as theirs. And that's why God considered it evil in his eyes that when Judah's first son dies who was kind of a twit himself. The second one does not do his duty. And then here we have uh, this law that also relates to On uh, Onan. Onan spilling his seed as well. So some people say, well, that's kind of like uh, a form of contraception. Um, I mean, it is, but the sin, the sinful dimension relates more to not fulfilling your role according to the Leverite law if it's if it somehow weighs into contraception it's it's a secondary issue to these kinds of texts so these are more about uh, a man fulfilling his duties to a female relative with regard to providing a son for his brother yeah I mean it is an act of contraception but the it's probably not that God's bringing down the hammer because he spilled his seed on the ground. It's because he didn't fulfill his duties to his brother's name. Right? Nevertheless, some some historical theologians have uh, historically some theologians have used these texts and applied them 
specifically to declaring contraception as sin. What were you going to say, Jack? That's not a God's law. That's uh, their own law. No, but it is it is it is sanctioned by God. It's given by God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's obviously a culturally limited law. Okay, there are. Again, we don't want to kind of get into too much detail, but when you look at the laws of the Bible, you can't just look at them all flat. There are some laws that are civil, some that are moral, some that are laws of accommodation, like polygamy laws. They don't condone polygamy; they accommodate the ridiculous practice of it. Um, this one sort of ties into several things. It is moral in one sense because of the seed promises of the Old Covenant. It's also civil in that it puts certain checks and balances upon societal structure. Now, this next one, uh, probably should have started into this before you ate because some of you are probably going to vomit. But... um, Looking back in history at some of the practices of ancient cultures with regard to um, uh, contraception, the Greco-Romans used a potion containing dis, a, a distillate of copper in the 5th century, drank it in order to um, try to inhibit, uh, to use it as a contraceptive. The Babylonian Talmud uh, mentions vaginal suppositories. Who knows what those were made out of? The Egyptians, as far back as 1900 BC, would use a mixture of crocodile dung mixed on moistened fibers and insert it in the uterine entrance in order to try to inhibit uh, contraception. And uh, I shared this with the staff today. They weren't sure if it was the the chemicals in it or the sheer smell that uh, <laughs> ensured that there wouldn't be anything going on. Um, interestingly, I, I didn't I didn't know this until I looked this up several years ago. The first first rubberized condoms were used back in the mid 17th century. Um, from just another historical fact, from 1873 to 1936, it was illegal to import contraceptive devices into the United States. And that any sales were mostly forbidden as well. Maybe there was some extenuating circumstances. So we're talking somewhere between, well, almost up to the beginning of World War II, right? What was World War II, 1938? Did it start? 39. So right up till kind of the beginning of World War II, contraceptive imports were illegal in the United States. Not that long ago. Uh, the diet, the first diaphragm was invented back in 1880. Um, by 1970, the U.S. government was funding contraceptive options. Early church fathers, including Clement of Alexandra and Augustine, condemned contraception, stating that sex without some reproductive intention was tantamount to prostitution. Pretty interesting, eh? Obviously, they took an allegorical view of the Song of Solomon. (laughs) So, uh, how about some uh, stuff from recent years? Uh, How um, how have contraceptives been used in recent years? Well, 
we know that they are used at times for population control. So what would be one country that would be interested in population control? China. So we have, generally speaking, the one-child policy. It's actually lax in uh, rural areas. Sometimes you can get permission to have a couple kids, but definitely in the metropolitan areas like Beijing and Nanjing and Shanghai, one. The pill, guess who developed the pill? Dr. John Rock. No relation. I hardly even meet anybody with the last name Rock, and some guy named Dr. John Rock developed the pill. Now, initially, it was very potent. Many pregnancies were terminated to see if it worked. Uh, the first types led to medical risks and even deaths, and many, uh, maybe even all, I'm not sure, of the early pills were abortive. I think even up till maybe 20, 30 years ago, there were some forms that were still abortive. Um, another uh, use is what's called the IUD, which is the intrauterine device. Maybe not, maybe not as popular today. I'm, I'm not real sure, but. It was once very popular in that it primarily stopped the implantation of a fertilized egg on the uterine wall and was therefore abortive. Now, most modern, more modern forms claim to just hinder sterilization. They create mucus and different chemical reactions inside the uterus and fallopian tubes so the sperm can't reach the egg and therefore are not resulting in uh, abortive uh, abort, uh, babies. Um, so there's an intrauterine device. Basically, it's a T-shape. Has like some of them have copper in it and uh, some form of copper, and some have some other chemical in there that um, apparently they the the more modern styles are fairly safe. But the big question is, you know, do they hinder? Um, do they hinder? Do they stop contraception, or do they just get rid of the? Um, the fertilized ovum after the fact. So there's kind of an ethical question there. Uh, condom has remained very popular. Uh, it doesn't have any known, known, it doesn't have any known health hazards. And for the condom, basically the disadvantages are more psychological and sensational. Uh, diaphragms are apparently not abortive, but they can slip out of place and just not work. Uh, spermicides of various forms have been invented and they've been used, but, uh, and again, you got all different studies, but they are sometimes tied to a higher risk of birth defects, okay? And then uh, we have sterilization as a common option, especially you know, mechanical sterilization, not chemical sterilization, but sterilization through vasectomies or tubal ligations. Um, really, the only downside to those that is in the in the research material is potential psychological damage. Uh, they say there's actually a slightly slightly higher uh, increase in depression among women who've had their tubes tied because some of them may feel that their femininity has been sort of minimized, or they may then regret it and want to have a child again and they can't. So those those kinds of things. So later regret for vasectomies. Um, some people have reversals. The, the biggest challenge there is the potential of the male body developing anti-sperm antibodies so that by the time the reversal happens, your body kills off all the sperm anyway. Um, another just side note is if a later marital partner might want kids. So, I mean, I, I've, I know for, I've met 
people before who've maybe been divorced or something or their spouse dies and they get remarried. They want to have a family with that person and they've already had sterilization. So those are just some things to think about. Now, how do Christians generally view contraception? What are your thoughts on this? How do Christians, all people who call themselves Christians, generally approach this topic? Let's start with our Catholic friends. How do Catholics respond to this? Okay, so let's talk about then the, yeah, because you always have people that don't abide by the uh, the constituency to which they identify, but the Catholic Church officially is no way, right? Like no contraception, except for natural family planning, right? Which isn't contra isn't really really contraception, but there's still the reality of okay, well. Yeah, you're, you're a husband and wife. We're not expecting you to have the, the maximum number of kids that you can biologically produce over whatever, a 35-year period. Um, this is the official stance of the Protestant church. Let's not talk about it. <laughs> For the most part, right? We just don't talk about it. You know, make up your own mind. But because there's so many... Because there's so many technologies out there, people are asking the question, like, are there any lines that need to be drawn? What's right and what's wrong? How should I respond to this? I, I, and I, I know I've counseled plenty of young Christian couples who've asked the question in premarital counseling as they're getting set up to be married, you know, is it okay to go on the pill? Is it okay to use a condom? And uh, you've you got to try to help them work through that. Um, I mean, those of you that are parents, at some point, maybe your kids will ask that question. And you're like, I don't know. Go ask Pastor Aaron. <laughs> He's got a lot of kids. Clearly, I don't know. So um, it's good for us to talk about these things and at least try to have some biblical parameters. So are there any, bib- let's go then go to s- broad concepts. And this is where we'll, we'll just barely get into these tonight and then we'll we have to get going, and then we're going to come back and talk about some specifics of in vitro fertilization and whatnot. But broad biblical or theological concepts that at least impact a discussion about contraception include, we need to think about the seed blessing of um, the Old Covenant. By the way, for those of you that may not be aware, seed is a euphemism for sperm, right? So the idea being um, that God will, when God says, I'm going to bless your seed, he's not talking about the stuff you're planting in a field. Uh, he's talking about, you know, you your uh, offspring. So here's the thing. Because the seed blessing is part of both pre, pre-Old Covenant and Old Covenant societies and, and New Covenant societies, at least New Covenant as a New Testament era, guess what? People back then wanted kids. And they wanted lots of kids. I mean, yeah, there might have been some exceptions to the rule, but the average Jewish guy, circa 800 BC, isn't like, ah, you know, I just want to party it up and you know, stay single for a long time and live the free and loose life and hang out in the nightclubs. It's not even on his mind. It's not the way people thought. So 
the the because children tend to tended to be valued the idea of having children tend to be so much more valued in, uh, across that uh, you know ancient near eastern into the greco-roman and even post greco-roman eras you're not going to find uh, anybody advocating contraception in the scriptures <laughs> they just wouldn't think that way now that doesn't mean that they're right and contraception's wrong i'm just Telling you though, you're not going to find proof texts that you know. Here, here's the parameters for contraception. In fact, even if you think about, just, I guess, thinking in broad strokes about Western society, right up until the sexual revolution, circa the 1960s, people had a lot of kids. They wanted kids. People liked to be married. You know, yada yada. That was sort of the dream. You, you, you go to school. You get married young. You have a lot of kids. You live to see your grandkids, your great grandkids, and that's the way life worked. And with the sexual revolution, the rise of independence, the independence of women from men and men from women, all that kind of stuff, and uh, a loss of biblical, uh, even societal mores on um, uh, you know, sex within marriage and this kind of thing, um, it's just an entirely different world. I mean, I, I, I've known, not, I haven't known any Christians that have done this, but I, I, I know of at least one um, unbelieving man who I, I think he was... 20 or 21, he went and got a vasectomy right away. Because he said, I don't ever want to have kids. I want to have, I don't, I'm not really all that interested in getting married, but I like to have some live-in girlfriends for the rest of my life, and I just don't have to worry about kids. Well, um, if that option was available, if you were a physician in the ancient Near East and that option was available, you'd go out of business. Because people wouldn't be coming, you, coming to you for your services. Um, so they wanted large families, right? So, then we, we could then ask this other question. So if you look at the Catholic Church's view, natural family planning, that's okay, but mechanical or chemical natural uh, family planning is, is not okay. <coughs> kind of begs the question, well, is, we'll just call it contraceptive family planning intrinsically different than natural family planning? Let's think about this for a moment. So if a couple says, you know, we're going to limit the number of kids we have to three, and we're going to go the natural method. So we're going to kind of follow the woman's cycle and make sure we don't have sex during these days and these days and these days. And couple number two says, we want to only have three kids, and we're going to wear a condom. At the end of the day, you get three kids for the one and three kids for the other. So the end result is the same. The question is, is there anything sinful in the fact that you use two different means to get the same end result. So it's just a question to, to consider in this mix. Because most couples do not produce the maximum number of children that they are capable of. Whether you follow the natural family planning method or some sort of contraceptive method. I mean, most don't, right? Especially when there's something like, you know, I don't know, 200 million sperm in every male ejaculation during intercourse and a woman's born with who knows how many hundreds of ovum, right? I mean, you could hypothetically have a whole lot more kids than any of us have here if you, um, if you just didn't even think about it. Another question from church history, especially during the, the era where the, the Roman bishop
bishops and pastors and whatnot were celibate is this sort of the practical question of uh, is a celibate clergy really objective when it comes to creating church dogma on a matter like this? And the question should be uh, the, the question could be answered no, no. Maybe that doesn't apply to Protestants, but we're we're looking at well, we've looked at Augustine and Clement, and they are living during the period of time which we would call the the age of the Roman Catholic Church. Now that doesn't mean they're they were as heretical as the Catholics come the time of the Reformation, but that's the Roman Catholic era from roughly 350, 360 up to 1550. That's the Roman Catholic era. And so the pronouncements that have come, are coming out of the church, which have shaped even the Protestant ethic on this matter, are largely coming from a celibate clergy. So... You just got to kind of take that into consideration when you're looking at historical precedent or historical teachings with regard to contraception. Then we could look at Paul, and again, just broad broad ideas here. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul um, taught married couples not to forbid sex unless for a period of time for prayer. So a maximum fertility must not be in view, nor is marital sex thought to be merely for reproduction. In fact, he says, basically, when you can't handle it any longer, come back together. Well, what's, what does you can't handle it any longer basically mean? Does that mean, i got to have another kid? No, it means you have sexual urges that can rightly be fulfilled in a marital covenant. So Paul doesn't seem to have a, you know, just a, it's all about having kids, it's sort of the Victorian era mindset. Uh, he seems to understand there's a different dimension to marital sex uh, than just uh, for reproduction. Uh, it's the, really the, re- the Protestant reformers that reopened the door for, of, and it took a little while, but reopened the door for a view of sex as part of companionship and not just for procreation. Um, interestingly, I don't know the exact dates, but... Uh, I don't think any historical theologian would disagree with this statement, and that is that let's take the Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs as we call it in the Old Testament. So that's part of a body of literature called wisdom literature. It's about practical living. And there's different genres. The Proverbs are actually Proverbs, and the Psalms are songs, and uh, you know, Job is a combination of narrative and dialogue. So the Song of Solomon is actually a kind of an erotic poem. That's the genre, but it's all part of wisdom literature. And if you read the Song of Solomon sort of just at first blush, pardon the pun, it's very sexual. It's very sexual. And we know that the Jews understood it to be that way because they would forbid younger men, I'm not sure what the age limit was, certainly unmarried men, from reading it. You want to get your mind going in directions, boys, that you're not ready for yet, so this is out of bounds for you. And then fast forward several centuries, past the New Testament era, up till probably only about 100 to 200 years ago, maybe even less, and it all became metaphorical. So many of you, if you've been around church long enough, were taught, as were we, that it was a metaphorical uh, account of God's love relationship with the church. How many of you 
we're taught that, right? And, but you read it, it's, that's ridiculous. Jesus doesn't use it that way. I mean, all the discussions Jesus and Paul have about followership and church, and they never reference that as any sort of a relationship to Christ and the church. Historically, that wasn't the point. It's clearly an erotic poem, and it, it seems to suggest that God's okay with um, pleasure and the seeking of pleasure in the marital union and so forth. Um, so the reformers seem to begin to reopen that that the door for passages in our Bible to be read that way so that most modern Christians would then understand that actually sex if it's for no other reason than companionship and pleasure and intimacy, yeah, that's okay. So every time a couple has sex, doesn't I mean, well, well, got five kids. It only happened five times. I remember, I remember uh, we overheard or found out through one of our kids that Abby had said to, um, I hope she's not down the hall. She's not here, is she? So she's 10, right? But she had said to one of her siblings, oh, mom and dad must have did it six times, once in their honeymoon and once for each of us. You know? um, it's happened a few more times, we'll admit it. Uh, but, um, you know, most of us would say, I think all of us in this room would, would recognize that marital sex is for more than just reproduction. Karl Barth stressed uh, personal decision-making and responsibility within marriage, including uh, in the area of contraception. And taking into consideration, I would assume, things like how many kids you can care for and financial means and so forth and so on. A, a key passage that needs to be considered in all this is uh, um, Genesis 1.28. When Jesus says, be fruitful and multiply, what's sort of the, the top end of that? You know, is this like we got a lot of discussion in our society about overpopulation. What does that mean? By the way, I've traveled the world. I've been to Africa. I've been to... Asia, I've been to Europe, South America, North America. The world's not overpopulated. Everybody just wants to live in the same spot. But there's a lot of space in between, okay? And I'm not being, I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious, and I'm not saying that, you know, we, municipal planning and that shouldn't consider issues with regard to population, but I, I'm not really convinced that the world's overpopulated. I, But if you throw 30 million people into, you know, a few thousand acres of land and call it Beijing, yeah, you're going to have some problems. Um, and, you know, maybe we need to think about that a little bit more. But, I mean, the, the, the Genesis mandate is be fruitful and multiply, and there's certainly no place in Scripture that says, but when you get to 7 billion, stop. So uh, it looks like we're over time. We'll just stop there, and uh, we'll pick up this discussion next week. So thanks for coming.